What often gets in the way of that is people want to be a saint. And they think the way to make the greatest difference in the world is to be the greatest person individually. But I thought, what if you could leverage the power of the collective and networks to make everyone a little bit more positive contributor? And with enough people, you could have even more impact than, than the greatest person that ever lived. And so I was able to think that because it was the beginning of the days of the personal computer and databases and desktop publishing. And there was this real feeling that technology was about to go into the hands of the individual citizen who could do things that only large organizations could do before that. Born in San Francisco, adopted and raised in New York by a novelist and illustrator mother, an ethical Wall Street banker father, Jim Clark grew up with abundance and privilege and a deep sense of love. Jim's mother would wake him each day with an exercise that conditioned him to consider every day as a blank sheet of paper. In part one of this two-parter, Jim discusses growing up in a highly creative home, developing a love of the environment, embracing academic challenges, managing his procrastination and always believing in his own agency. Jim recounts the serendipity and life-affirming experience of meeting Buckminster Fuller that set him on a path to his first entrepreneurial venture at university by leveraging the power of networks and subsequently building a second networking venture in 94 that partnered with a little-known startup called AOL. In part two, Jim discusses how he envisioned the future value of technology in the 21st century and forming the World Technology Network, a global community of peer-vetted technology experts and visionaries and an annual award series under the banner of Encouraging Serendipity. Jim also discusses his perspective on the power and value of curiosity and serendipity, how he looks for patterns in history and why remaining open to the fluidity of outcomes creates better outcomes. We discuss his new initiative, the World Congress for a New Civilization, the existential challenges we face as a society and a planet, and why he's creating a new global representation for all humanity. And there's so much more. I hope you enjoy the expansive thinking, inspirational insights, and fluid life analysis of Jim Clark. Jim, welcome to the Impossible Network podcast. Glad to be here. Thank you very much for making the time and coming all the way to Neuhaus. So you've had a really interesting life in technology, amongst other things, but I'd love to understand more about your childhood and where you grew up and the influence of your parents and other peers and siblings and even mentors. So maybe you could just start with where you grew up. I grew up in New York City from about four days old on because before that I was in San Francisco. I was uh, born in San Francisco and put up for adoption and uh, adopted by New Yorkers who came and got me and then brought me back and raised me here in New York. Wow, that's um, incredible. We've never had that story, but San Francisco to New York, well, that could have been quite interesting. You could have ended up in Arkansas of all places. I, I could have. The thought has occurred to me, yeah. But actually, I, should, I don't know why I said Arkansas, because you actually did at one point. Um, okay, well, I should say that you could have ended up in Alaska of all places. So I lucky have, you. Yeah. New York. Okay, so tell us about um, growing up and your parental support with your adoptive parents in New York and the guidance they gave you and how that affected the journey that you've, you've been on? I was given the alternatives. I was uh, very, very lucky to be adopted by uh, truly wonderful parents, both of whom are, are gone now. My uh, father was um, a very ethical man who also worked on Wall Street, a kind of old 
lifestyle Wall Street that's not there anymore. And uh, my mother was a pretty famous and successful children's book writer and illustrator and uh, who had a studio in the home. Bedtime reading must have been fun. Bedtime reading was fabulous. Um, <laughs> and uh, it was a very privileged background. As a child, I didn't know that, but I had uh, safety net upon safety net. But all through it, I had the feeling, as much as I loved them and as much as I considered them my parents, I definitely was aware so early that I don't remember when I wasn't aware of being adopted. And for me, that was a source of strength. Uh, I definitely felt from a very young age that I was on an adventure and that uh, I was kind of the first of the line. And uh, so I had a chance to set the tone for all my descendants. And and uh, I didn't have really any presumed baggage that most people positively or negatively feel when they're growing up in their family, when they think, as they start to recognize similarities or differences. Whenever I saw that, I was able to separate it from myself and say that, you know, I can choose. That's incredibly empowering. Later on, we can talk a little bit about the fact that when I was 26, I reunited with my birth parents and I learned everything about my heritage and my genetics and so on. But in the formative years of my life, I had no idea. So it really was a source of, uh, of empowerment. And where in New York did you grow up? I grew up on the Upper East Side um, and uh, went to uh, private elementary school and then uh, private high school. And easily it could have been a situation, and I saw that with others of my, of, with my peers, that um, with all the wealth and, again, sort of layers upon layers of safety nets that I, I could have um, indulged in that and uh, seen that as a source of um, lack of initiative. Instead, I think it took my natural tendency to be an adventurer and explorer, and uh, it turbocharged it. And what characteristics did your parents each instill in you, or what did you learn from them? Presumably, they were quite different characters. Yeah. A banker and a creative and a writer. Well, both both of them actually, even though we had a lot of, we lived a life of privilege in my childhood, both of them didn't have uh, much money until um, their late 30s, early 40s. So the atmosphere in our home was definitely one of gratitude for what, what we had available and also a kind of set of values that maybe weren't usual for people who grew up in affluence. My father constantly talked about the fact that he was, you know, from the streets of Chicago and um, had Midwestern values and kind of street savvy. He was an extremely ethical man, very concerned with, uh, and got very worked up in front of me as a role model about right and wrong. My mother was a true creative and had a lot of great friendships with many of the most creative people of her time who were her friends and part of our social circles and social life. So I got exposed to that as a, a young age. One of the most important things that my mother did was uh, she achieved her mission, which was to instill creativity in my sister and I. She used to do this uh, thing when I was about um, six, seven, eight years old. My sister's two years younger than me. Before school in the morning, she would leave a, a blank sheet of paper folded in half next to our bed. And 
she would either write a sentence and then we'd have to illustrate next to the sentence before breakfast, or she would do a little illustration and we'd have to write a sentence to go with it. And we did it so often that it became second nature. And uh, I only remember this years later, and now I don't forget it at all that this happened, but the feeling of starting the day as a blank sheet of paper and a blank sheet of paper that you could fill with your interpretation of reality or your creative uh, impulse did really become second nature. So I have huge credit to my mother for that little exercise. Yes, wonderful uh, way of instilling in children that belief in possibility and the power that they have to create their own future. And there was never any judgment about what we did create. That's fantastic. I wonder what gave her that idea, if it had been done to her when she was a child. I doubt it. Um, But she was the kind of person that would come up with those sorts of Uh ideas. Uh That's lovely. With that, a mother like that and giving you that type of um, environment, what was it like beyond just the the waking up in the morning and being around her, the, the freedom you had to explore the city, uh, what play was like to discover you, your creative side. Did she foster that? Yeah. I mean, one thing was, as I mentioned, not only my mother, but also my father, they had an incredible circle of, of uh, creative and accomplished friends. Their Sunday brunches were famous as a sort of cross-section. They would start in the morning and run to the end of the evening. And people would come in and out of the home, and it was sort of a who's who of the business, innovation, creative worlds, um, the best of the best coming through. And and I uh, was definitely not excluded from that. So it wasn't children be seen and not heard? No, not at all. But but it was definitely, uh, I wasn't contributing that much, but I just was became used to it, being, you know, stimulated. And my parents never, you know, dissuaded me from swimming in that, in that sea. I also think that, um, I mean, my mother used to take my sister and I to the Museum of Modern Art after school instead of just going to the playground or something. So she didn't really treat us as little kids incapable of participating in the richness of the adult world. And certainly for me, I was attracted deeply to this. And this meshed very well with this thing I said earlier about me feeling that I'd been on an adventure from day one. So this was just, uh, I was just a kid in a candy store in terms of the worlds that they gave me access to. Mm. What books did she create? The most famous one was um, uh, in the mid-70s called The Maggie Bee, which was later called one of the first sort of feminist children's books. I don't know if she particularly intended it to be at the time, but it was just the way that she lived as a very free spirit. But it was about a a young girl who had her own ship and she has adventures on her own ship and she takes care of her little her little brother and uh called James. Called James. Yeah. And uh but it was definitely again adventure, independent, and so forth. And many grown women who grew up at the age where they read that book. When I, my sister and I have read the uh, Amazon reviews, just extraordinary when they talk about the, um, how that's their favorite, a lot of women's, young women's favorite book growing up and often changed change their lives. Um, but that was, you know, we were in the house in the, com- hanging out in the studio 
So when we weren't in the playground or we weren't at the Museum of Modern Art or we weren't hanging out with um, my parents' creative friends, we were often also in the studio because she wouldn't stop working and she would keep us busy by giving us a space on the desk to draw and paint and, and write. And so while she was creating, we were creating. It was definitely a feeling in the house of um, everything was fair game to be art. Uh-huh. Well, it must have been interesting. It's, it's, we were interviewing Pamela Smith, who's a professor of history at uh, Columbia a few weeks ago. And she was talking about growing up in the Sierra Nevada in the tiny town of only a few hundred people and their media consumption. And there wasn't anything. There was a radio station and they got Time magazine once a month to get the news. And the rest of the time was spent playing and creating and being out on adventures. And I think we forget that we live in a world today where our children are just immersed into technology platforms and what they're losing out from that creative indulgence. And we have to wonder what we're doing to our, our a generation of children that aren't getting access to that sense of discovery and sense of play that you had and people like Pamela had. Yeah. I mean, I think, I do think about that. I'm the father of uh, two young women. I don't think it's as simple as that. I think it's an easy thing for our generation and, and the creative class to bemoan the, uh, the screen time of, of young people in this generation. I think in many ways, our childhood was in the grand scheme of the history of Homo sapiens was probably not quite, but almost as off base from our evolutionary history as the extreme we have right now. You know, we watched a lot of television, my generation, you know, which was not interactive. I, you know, I think there's some positives right now that are opening up for children. I think the human mind in the same way that um, sociologists and, and anthropologists have observed the human children's ability to, you know, take a stick and make a toy out of it and, you know, take a, a circle and, uh, and a stick and turn it into a doll. And then from that base, extrapolate an entire fantasy world that is, you know, as rich as uh, a child who's, you know, been presented with the doll you know, in a more affluent setting, you know, that the human mind takes the raw materials that it's been given and exercises its muscles in whatever way it can. And so the idea that that young people are not exercising their creativity, I think is probably somewhat inaccurate in the sense that I bemoan the freedom that I had as a child physically to be more outside, I bemoan the fact that I was more connected to nature than kids. And I think those things are some negatives. But the kids that I see today are extremely interactive with their technology and they they use their technology the way a child does with a stick and they they express themselves from that base. They're not they're not constrained by it. Someone said a quote when we were interviewing them once, life happens for us, not to us. And maybe the reality is that this generation are being surrounded and giving the interactive experience and the problem-solving challenges that we didn't have because it's preparing them for what we need to allow the species to exist in a world that I'm sure we'll come in and talk about AI and the potential sort of upsides and downsides of it, that it's actually what a lot of children need. I mean, there's no question the benefit that games can 
bring to a child's development in a positive way. But I suppose if, if you speak to people like Common Sense Media, who are clearly have their concerns about the wrong and the right type of media and what children should be exposed to, there's no simple yes, right and wrong, but there is a spectrum. But anyway, let, yeah. let's come, let's ca- carry on. I just want to add one yeah, other sure. thing just about children, which is that, you know, one of the defining characteristics that I've observed about children is um, they're incredibly good at detecting hypocrisy. I think it's developmental because they're absorbing so much information and they're trying to catalog it into, you know, what is right and what is wrong or what is proper and what isn't or what is workable and what isn't. And so they're much more sensitive in the early years of that exposure to all new experiences, to um, things that don't fit the models that they're constructing as they as they develop. So imagine a generation now that's being given unprecedented access to information where we bemoan um, the loss of childhood, which by the way was childhood was much shorter in most of human history than than for a brief period of our childhood era. And we think that the kids are kids are becoming so precocious so quickly because they're exposed to so much information. But on the positive side, it filtered through their hypocrisy filter, you're you're getting the possibility of more Parkland students, more Greta Thunbergs, you know, because they are more apt at a younger age when their hypocrisy filter is at its peak to find things intolerable and unacceptable. Very good observation. And just on your early influences, was there any, I mean, you've, you've talked about the the defining memory of waking up with a blank sheet of paper every day um, and what that meant for you and has, uh, has empowered you to have, has affected the way you look at life. Are there any other defining moments from your childhood that resonate? I wouldn't say it was a defining moment, but a, a defining repeated set of experiences with the tidal pools of... Uh, the areas um, outside New York City, as well as on vacation in in more tropical places. From the age of three on, I got so much pleasure from wading in tidal pools and and looking at sort of the miniature worlds of of, uh, the shoreline that uh, I decided I wanted to be a marine biologist. So from age three till 18, I kept at the peak, up to seven aquariums of, of fish, that sea life that I caught myself and would keep in these aquariums throughout the year. And um, at first, it was just pure pleasure and fascination. But as I got older, it began to be more of a connection with um, uh, protecting life and environmentalism and, and, and so on. So I think that although that marine biology interest evolved later into interest in the environment and environmental organizations and then making a difference overall, there's no way that I could say that my childhood wasn't hugely shaped by the pure bliss I felt in, in tidal pools, summer after summer, vacation after vacation. They were in uh, the east end of Long Island. Um, my parents had a summer home there on the Long Island Sound side, in the bays, or or in the rocks on the Atlantic side, or on vacation. Did your did your mother and father find this unusual and curious about why why you took this interest in 
No, and, and again, that I guess goes back to my earlier comments about, you know, feeling fully supported. I have so many memories of my mother indulging my interest in this and, and uh, you know, bringing a beach chair and putting uh, sunblock on herself and reading uh, one of, one of uh, her favorite, you know, novels while keeping uh, one eye on me as I explored the water. And uh, it, this just happened you know, in retrospect, I mean, I can't, the number of hours that she did that was, was extraordinary. And she just, um, uh, she didn't question it, you know, it was, um, and that was true for all my interests as a child was just, uh, how do you find out who this new being is? And then how do you, um, make it easier for them to be that person? I suppose being the parent of an adopted child probably made her even more aware of this, you know, that, she was entrusted with my life and and uh, was kind of going to let it unfold. As long as I, you know, felt strong enough my own to pursue things, she was going to help me. And my dad, in different ways, um, was either proud of that without being as directly involved in my interests and, you know, at times financially supportive. Okay. I think you, you mentioned at the start about the environment was one of gratitude. And I have a question, which is, did you live with abundance or scarcity? Uh, Definitely abundance. Even though we weren't aware to the extent it was unusual, we just could not have been unaware. You know, we grew up in New York in the late 60s and and 1970s when, um, uh, and I graduated high school in 82. So, I mean, that period of New York's history was was, uh, rough. And um, uh, there was a lot Color, of colorful, uh, colorful. And there was a lot of apparent uh, poverty and and uh, and social inequity that was more in your face. It snuck on away, but it was more in your face in those days. So definitely, we were we were aware of that, and we were aware that there was abundance. But it really took much later for me to realize that it wasn't just your average level of abundance. So what was school like for the young James? That we believe you went to. Uh, two schools in New York, the town school and also the Horace, Horace Mann school. Yeah. I went from age three till eighth grade at the town school on the Upper East Side. Small school, often described as sort of a Manhattan private school with kind of Midwestern values too, even though most of the people who were there didn't know what that meant, but that's what people from the Midwest would say. Your father must have loved that. He loved that. And, uh, it was very for the time. I think it was it was um, it wasn't super experimental, but it was definitely on the more joy than discipline side, and uh, that was ideal ideal for me. Most of the kids in my class were, uh, you know, I was with them every day for years, and uh, I graduated um, as the co valedictorian of my class, and felt really uh, launched into the world very well by by that place and. Horace Mann is one of the top high schools academically in America, up in the Riverdale section of the Bronx. It would take uh, about an hour by bus or an hour and a half by subway and to and and crosstown bus to get there and back each way. And uh, I didn't enjoy it very much. Um, it was uh, it made when I left. It made the first year of college seem like a really easy cushy situation because Horace Mann was just so much homework and pressure and 
in my opinion, you know, a lot of kids who also had abundance like we did, but didn't necessarily deal with it the same way. Um, so there was definitely sort of bit of a spoiled feeling too. And there was a lot of unhappiness. How did you balance this desire to be a marine biologist at an early age with clearly a, a vision of where you wanted to go with life with a mother that was instilling you deep sort of creative practices, let's say, and the the rigors of a fairly, sounds like quite a hardworking, work ethic driven um, education system? Well, I was lucky that um, school was never that difficult for me. Academics were never that difficult. So even though I was given a, you know, a lot of academic challenges, uh, I was able to, I always had the ability to, which I've never lost, the ability to procrastinate um, at an epic level and still you know, pull off the good outcome or even the excellent outcome. And uh, obviously I've thought a lot about that and, uh, you know, sometimes it was exactly what caused it to go from good to excellent was the fact that I was able to keep all these other aspects of my life alive and then turn it on when I needed to. Well, you, um, you're in good company with people like Darwin and Da Vinci who were classic procrastinators. Yeah, yeah I didn't realize, but, uh, yeah, I'll take it if, <laughs> yeah. if there's some similarities. <laughs> yeah, we interviewed Andrew Santella who wrote a book called um, Time and it was all about procrastination there's observ observations on it and it's a it's a fascinating subject when you get down that rabbit hole i went once in uh, college i signed up for a procrastination workshop and uh <laughs> i had signed up a uh, day after the deadline <clears throat> and, of course. Uh, uh, you were the first I, the, and everyone in the group actually had signed up late and uh so we were all accepted that's the only way you were accepted because we, we signed up early we proved rejected. we proved that we were we were um needful and uh uh yeah so never lost that habit okay so oh, i took it yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you you um you went from school to a university wesleyan wesleyan yes wesleyan university to study government and politics where did the marine biology go it evolved like as i mentioned earlier into a kind of environmentalism the first internship that i was going to get at the end of my freshman year, I was going to have what I consider, just objectively speaking, to be the best internship of all time. I was going to be the assistant for the summer of John Lilly, the famous dolphin scientist and researcher, for whom the um, movie Altered States uh, oh, yeah. was, uh -huh. was in part based on. So he was a, a psychonaut experimenter and a, and a dolphin researcher. So I was going to work with him for the summer in Manzanillo, Mexico, off a dive boat using an Apple computer and an underwater microphone and early uh, software to create the first human dolphin vocabulary. So you can imagine from a child who has wanted to be in marine biology, this was, this was going to be it. And about a week before I was supposed to leave, uh, John Lilly's lawyer told him you can't have a 18 year old on a dive boat all summer doing five dives a day, you know, someone's going to get sued eventually about something. And, um, and it was too dangerous. So I quickly had to find an internship. This, uh, I was so devastated to find an internship to replace it. The closest thing I could find 
was an environmental group on Long Island that was trying to protect the, you know, nature and particularly the oceans locally. And those tidal bay areas and pools that I love so much indirectly. So it was kind of a stretch, but I thought, okay, this is, there's a thread through line here. And uh, so I worked for them for the summer and the internship wasn't particularly interesting as often as the case with internships, but the organization was a nonprofit organization. And because of that, I learned about nonprofit organizations, that there's not just uh, businesses and government, the way I'd grown up assuming those were the two places you could work. And so I got very interested in the idea that that uh, these things existed, these creations, entrepreneurial creations of individuals that were organizations where people actually worked and were paid and and so forth. So that was uh, that definitely was um, a turning point for me. Mm. So you went on to Cambridge University in England to study economic theory. Yeah, that was my junior year at Wesleyan, but there was no junior year abroad program at Cambridge. And uh, so I was accepted as Cambridge as a regular student for first year and told Wesleyan that I was on junior year abroad. And I could have stayed uh, two more years at Cambridge. I stayed one year. And then because Wesleyan thought I was a junior year abroad, I came back for my final senior year at Wesleyan. And uh, that was a nice hack. <laughs> and convinced uh, all the professors on every single course subject to accept the credit from Cambridge. And, and that was during the... Um, that senior year, or just before that senior year, that I got the idea of the first nonprofit organization I wanted to start and did that while a senior at college, while uh, running the uh, Amnesty International campus group, turning it into the largest one they'd had to date in terms of percentage of students participating. While I was doing that, I was um, finishing up my degree. I was running my first nonprofit or setting it up in my dorm room. Because I was, I was just ready to be in the real world at that point. So what set you on a path from, you could have gone in, in many directions at that point with either a, a career in politics, a, a career in an NGO, could have taken you on many paths, but your career trajectory has been pretty much defined by technology. It's funny. It looks that way. Mm -hmm. um, and technology is often involved, but I think that's because technology is often involved in everything that's going on in the world today. It's not my... I've always been interested in it since I was a child. I, I subscribe to a lot of science magazines and tech magazines. And like many young kids, I was you know interested in gadgets and, and things like that. But it was never really a driving force. What drove me more than anything else... I think from probably the middle of high school on, which is often when people have a kind of social and political awakening, was you know that I there were problems in the world that everyone has the ability to engage with them if they choose, and that I had agency, which again I felt since I was a very young child that I I really was on my own and I had agency and I could choose. I wasn't imprisoned by any you know, destiny of uh, constructed by my upbringing, or at least I didn't feel that way. So being um, an explorer, being an adventurer, being uh, viewing everything like that meant that as soon as I could, I was thinking, how can I engage with the world, try to address problems that bother me? 
And how can I make an exciting, adventurous life out of that? Mm-hmm. So you, that transition where you created your first nonprofit, I believe it was called Access, that seemed to, I know I mentioned technology, but maybe I sort of uh, refine that in that you seem, from ob- my observation of what I've read about you and what I've, just my f- one meeting with you um, before this interview, is the you've leveraged the power of networks and networking to create positive change in the world. Would that be fair? Yeah, I mean, so the first organization that I set up in the summer after Cambridge, before my senior year at Wesleyan, I was starting to think, as people often do at that time, what am I going to do next? And um, I had gotten this idea about entrepreneurship, and people now call it social entrepreneurship, but I was thinking, you know, how can I do something entrepreneurial that makes a difference? And I narrowed it down to three, looking at the future, I narrowed it down to three things. I was either going to immerse myself in Chinese language and culture because I felt that uh, what happens in China will determine the arc of the 21st century. Second, and that seemed, you know, even at that point, self-evident. Second, I was going to immerse myself into biotechnology uh, because I thought that if I could use biotechnology to uh, create synthetic protein, that uh, I could eliminate much of the animal suffering that was seen to be the way it needed to be in the world. So now you have these uh, vat-grown meats that people are working on and and that are uh, soon to be commercially viable. But I was thinking I could do that as a path, and that would contribute much to the lessening of suffering in the world. Or I could come up with an idea that would create small positive impact over so many people that the net impact would be greater than even if I was a saint. And what often gets in the way of that is people want to be a saint. And they think the way to make the greatest difference in the world is to be the greatest person individually. But I thought, what if you could leverage the power of the collective and networks to make everyone a little bit more positive contributor? And with enough people, you could have even more impact than than the greatest person that ever lived. And so I was able to think that because it was the beginning of the days of the personal computer and databases and desktop publishing. And there was this real feeling that technology was about to go into the hands of the individual citizen who could do things that only large organizations could do before that. The other reason that I was thinking this way um, had to do with a serendipitous encounter that I had with Buckminster Fuller. So shortly after I started- Not many people can say that. (laughs) I mean, it's really, (laughs) it's an incredibly lucky experience. Mm -hmm. But shortly after I started Wesleyan, I love bookstores. So I was always would hang out at bookstores. And there was the college bookstore and there was the Middletown, Connecticut uh, town bookstore. And I exhausted the college bookstore and I went to the town bookstore one day uh, it was nearly empty, and there was a very old man, looked like he was nineties, sitting at a desk with a couple of books piled up. Who was there for a book signing? And um, usually, I found that you know the oldest person at a party is probably the most interesting or has the best stories. And so I thought I'd start talking with him. And um, 
we spoke for about five minutes and then he said, you know, why don't you sit down? So we sat down. There's no one else in the store. And um, he said, would you mind if I interview you? And I said, interview me? And he said, yeah, as you can tell, I'm a, a very old man and I'm probably will be gone soon. And um, I'm looking for people I can pass the baton to for my work. And based on the things that you've already said, the answers that you've already given, it sounds like you think similarly to me on your own, young man. So he started to interview me more in earnest, almost like a job interview. And um, toward the end of the, the this interview, for about an hour, he said, uh, uh, have you ever heard of anything called a trim tab? And I said, uh, no. And he said, well, that's the little flap on the, on the, like a boat rudder. Like there's the big rudder and then there's the little rudder. And that's what you move. You can't move the big rudder. It's with the, with the, uh, force of the water, you move the little one. And if you put it in the right place, the laws of physics will move the big one. It's in the back of a plane too. And, um, he said, what, what I do is I think in terms of trim tabs. And um, he said, you seem to naturally think that way too. So I just want you to encourage, encourage you to keep doing that. I was like, what an interesting old man. And uh, I went back to campus. Then a few hours later, everyone in my dorm room said, are you going to the lecture tonight? And you know, I was new to college. I didn't know what to do. I said, we were all sort of at that point moving in packs, those first few few weeks of college. And I went and I couldn't get into the biggest lecture hall in the university. And we were sort of outside and peeking in. And there in the far distance in the front of the room was this tiny little figure. And it was the old man from the bookstore. And I said, that's the guy that I met today. And everyone looked at me, that's Buckminster <laughs> Fuller. So the reason I tell the story is um, uh, not only is a great example of a, of a serendipitous encounter, I don't actually believe that it was fundamentally life-changing. I believe that it was affirming mm, yes. because there was nothing in our conversation that was an epiphany. He kept asking me things to see if I already thought that way because only then was he encouraging me. He was, he was saying that, you know, I really feel that you naturally will be able to do this, that it won't be an effort for you, that you already naturally think this way. And, and it was definitely true. So the reason I bring this up is when I talk about starting Access a, you know, a few years later, and the full name of Access was Access colon Networking in the Public Interest, was to create a trim tab that would create the greatest positive impact on the world. And what I thought was, what if I helped everyone find the right nonprofit job, paid job, entry-level, mid-level, top-level and if I could create the first clearinghouse for jobs in the nonprofit sector, this is well before the internet, and people got their jobs in the classified sections of newspapers, and nonprofits were an afterthought in there. There was definitely no classifieds for the nonprofit sector. So what if I create that using this new invention of the Macintosh and this new invention of, of the personal computer database and this new invention of desktop publishing, which allowed a college senior to contemplate doing this with, you know, at a very low budget. What if I do that? And because when people are in the right job or they keep looking for the job that is the right job because they have a way to do it, they're going to be X percent more effective. 
So instead of the nonprofit sector being the kind of accidental career or kind of volunteer evolving into a job, uh, what if I systematize that over hundreds of thousands of people in a sector that employed one out of 14 uh, workers in the American economy for paid jobs? Wouldn't that be the, a net gain much greater than anything else I could do? And that's why I chose that. And it, it caught on very quickly. Apple found out I was doing this all on a Mac and gave me, with almost no paperwork, $80,000 worth of equipment and not just computer equipment, but also allowed me to use through a service they were partnered with their internal email system for free, which was otherwise extremely expensive in those days. Almost no one was on email. And this allowed me to communicate. It allowed me to put the job listings up on the first places that were online, which were um, college libraries that had to go online because sharing collections and no one had modems in those days. But this was really very early on. And I began to put the job listings up as as if they were each messages. And so when this all started, this got a lot of, um, of publicity. Soon after I started, after graduation, uh, publishing the first listings, the Washington Post did a half-page story on it. They put it on the National Wire Services. Must be saving nonprofits a lot of money in recruitment. Yeah, I mean, it, it definitely did. We were, um, so what happened was the dean of the Kennedy School at Harvard read, read an article in the Boston Sunday Globe magazine about what I was doing and invited me to dinner. At dinner, he said, how'd you like to be on the faculty of Harvard and base the organization here? So I moved to, to Cambridge, Massachusetts and um, opened, reopened the office and started hiring people at, at, out of the Kennedy School. And um, opened a Western office at UC Berkeley, a Southern office at Duke University, and a Midwestern office at the University of Chicago, and used the free email Apple system to share all the data between all the organizations quickly, which previously we'd had to um, FedEx every night, copies of floppy disks. And um, it was a by uh, eventually at the peak, we were reaching about 150,000 job seekers a year, working with thousands of organizations listing their jobs. So you were getting the organizations to upload their listings onto Upload your- or mail them in, and we would upload them. And, and uh, But people could search either online or for many of them, they didn't have access to it. We would do the searches for them and, and send them out. And uh, I got most of the major foundations in the country to back it. The Rockefeller Brothers Fund was one of the leads. Um, the Ford Foundation, the Kellogg Foundation, um, the Hewlett Foundation, all were supporting us. We raised about $5 million over the f- first five years of donations and partnered with the Wall Street Journal to publish the upper level listings on our behalf. And but in the background was uh, this emerging discussions about promoted most early on in the most high-profile whale by by Al Gore, who did not invent the internet, but but did was the lead promoter. Well, of, within the, within yeah. the government, yeah, and he was promoting, he was popularizing this idea of the potential of the what he called the information superhighway. So that was increasing, and because of my university offices, I heard about this obscure science military network called the internet. So I, I said to some friends, why don't we create a graphical front end to the internet that looks like Apple interface? 
Apple's experimenting something called HyperCard, which was offline hypertext. And so we wrote a whole, I wrote a whole proposal um, for something called the ACT system, Active Citizen Telecommunications, which in 1988 and 89, I began to make speeches around the country about, particularly to librarians, because they were the ones that were first online. So I sometimes spoke to thousands of librarians at big conventions about the potential for using the internet for for uh, global communications and social change. It was too early. A guy uh, with my name started Netscape six years later and made a million dollars. But another serendipitous encounter happened um, that almost uh, helped it greatly. I was on a flight to Washington on a shuttle flight, and uh, I met a uh, older gentleman next to me who was Frank Stanton, who had been the former uh, president of CBS. And he was on the board of the MacArthur Foundation. So he heard about this idea and asked if he could set up a meeting with the chairman of the MacArthur Foundation. So I took the proposal for the ACT system to the, to the chairman of MacArthur and uh, told him when he asked, you know, how much it would cost to make this internet thing, you know, reach people more easily. Um, I said $1.2 million. I picked a non-round number that sounded like I knew what I was talking about. And um, so he said, I will try to get it funded myself, chairman's privilege. And uh, he died um, before the MacArthur board meeting and we never got it funded, but I came close. <laughs> and then what, what was the connection that then led you to working closely with American Online or AOL? So Access ended up, I became board chairman, not just the CEO and then just the board chairman. And I had other people running it, but also the internet was coming on. So the I passed along most of our data and databases to the Wall Street Journal's National Business Employment Weekly and faded off from that organization, which was now people were starting to search for jobs online and could type in the word nonprofit or whatever issue the way we had been doing. But now it was replacing the need for for this specialized classifieds. So um, I started a new organization called Access Point in uh, late 93, early 94 to bring the online world to the nonprofit sector. Um, not just with jobs. And um, I went to Prodigy and CompuServe, which were the two first online networks. The, between the two of them had about 150,000 users, which, you know, once you start talking about thousands, it started to seem real to people. We're not talking about millions yet, but I went to them and I said, uh, you know, I have this idea of making a difference online. I wasn't going to create a browser from scratch like the Axe system, but could I partner with them? And they didn't have a clue what I was talking about. This was doubly disappointing because I had taken a year off prior to that to um, work as one of the directors of Governor Clinton's campaign for the presidency, moved to Little Rock, was his director for the nonprofit sector and director for national service. So I helped develop some of the original ideas for AmeriCorps, and which was uh, in part, national service was an idea that had been around for a long time, but I had been um, one of the few founding members of Teach for America prior to that. So I knew a lot about the idea of these building these cores and it dovetailed nicely with my desire to bring lots of people in to make a difference as a, as a collective. So I had a chance at the time in part during my campaign work in those positions. And then after the, during the transition period, I was the co-creator of the presidential transition roundtable series bringing leaders down to Little Rock on issues that wouldn't have gotten attention right away. 
And I thought I was going to end up being special assistant to the president, one of the people in that position. Uh, when I didn't get a, that job, in part, my boss didn't get his job. Instead of kind of keeping to push to stay there, and I was newly married at that point for a year to my now ex-wife, and um, we were living in Boston. I didn't really want to necessarily move to to Washington, or and and she didn't. So I decided to start this new thing, Access Point. So when I went to Prodigy and CompuServe. They they laughed at me and said, you know, we have other things that are more important. So I was desperate and I looked around for anyone I could partner with. And there actually was a third company that had started to try to convince people to get online. And they had about 5,000 customers. And that was called America Online. Was Steve Case there at that point? Steve Case was the CEO. So I met, uh, I was supposed to have a meeting with Steve. Instead, I met with Gene Villanueva, who's for a long time been Gene Case. They remarried each other. So uh, Mrs. Case now, Gene Villanueva at the time, their communications director, loved our idea. And so um, we became one of AOL's first partners. And um, AOL um, gave me a very unusual contract where I could make contracts in their name with any nonprofit without checking with them. And so we created some of the first online credit card donations, online issue communities, online professional, nonprofit professional communities, all any way we could harness civic energy using online technology. And AOL gave me a free run for about three years to experiment. And and it was that period when they went from 5,000 to 500,000 to 5 million customers. And and uh, more than the internet began the online era. And uh, it was great. It was very exciting to be at the center of that. Wow. What year was that? Those were between 94 and 97. Yeah. Yeah, I remember being in London in 97 and getting the Sunday Times every week and every, you'd open it up and out would fall the CD from America yeah, Online. Everyone. You know, well, it fell yeah, out of everything. Everyone. The money that must have been spent on that. But and I moved to London in 97. Okay, that's the end of part one. Come back tomorrow for part two 